This is Opening Spaces, the podcast about democracy, produced by Democracy International. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Opening Spaces, the podcast about democracy. I'm Evan Smith. And I'm Andrew Bogrand, and today we're joined by Yamile Mizrahi, DI's Director of Research and Analytical Services. Welcome. Hi. Thank you very much. It's great to have you on today. And Yamile, one of the things that we've been focused, that you and your team specifically have been focusing on, crime and violence problems, specifically among youth. In Latin America, I know we've um, kind of done a a lot of different activities, so can you just kind of walk us through... um, you know, maybe just what's, what's happening in the region and, and kind of why that's been such a focus? Sure. The past three years, we have been working with USAID um, all over Latin America, but most uh, specifically in what is called the Northern Triangle, which is the area that has sustained higher levels of uh, criminality and especially homicides, uh, which is uh, in Central America, um, El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. But we also work in um, the Caribbean, more specifically in Jamaica, and Trinidad and Tobago. Um, What we do is we have uh, done uh, a lot of studies. We did evaluations of uh, USAID-funded programs. Uh, We also help missions as they need to design new activities based on knowledge. that we generate or what we know from similar interventions all over the world. So that's essentially what we are doing as we speak. Now, the question about crime and violence is a very interesting one because the region has tragically become known for being extremely violent. And it's one of the main problems that is hampering all the development work that has been uh, invested in this, uh, that has been, USAID has been investing for years. So the explosion, if you wish, of crime and violence in these uh, regions of the world or in these areas, specifically in these countries, has become uh, what we call epidemic, uh, meaning that it is growing exponentially. It has been growing exponentially for the past 10, 15 years. And um, It is affecting mostly young people, particularly males, uh, from the ages of 14 to 25. They are both the main perpetrators and victims of violence-related events. And it's an entire um, generation that seems to be affected by the criminal wave um, and, of course, the fear that it generates among the much larger population. So it is a very significant uh, problem in the region. It is a problem for development. It's obviously a problem for democracy because um, when there's fear and uh, there is the, the perception that the state has lost its capacity to ensure law and order, which is like the most basic function of the state, then uh, there is a lot of criticisms about whether or not uh, democracy can be sustained and whether or not uh, the government is able to basically control its own affairs. 
So it's very significant. Now, can we take a step back just a little bit um, before diving in deeper into some of those issues? And just, uh, you know, why, why do, is this a priority for the U.S. government? You know, what, why, why do we care what happens in this? I mean, there are a lot of places around the world that are violent, that have, you know, crime and, and, and worse problems. Why is this such a big focus of the U.S. government? Well, there's several reasons. One is just the humanitarian, uh, for humanitarian reasons. I mean, the crime rates in many of these uh, countries are absolutely uh, dramatic. Uh, for example, I, just to give you a sense of um, the crime rate in, in the three countries that I mentioned before, um, the, the the World Health Organization considers that a homicide rate of 10 over 100,000 individuals is already an epidemic. So just, um, just to give you a sense, the homicide rate in um, Guatemala was 30 per 100,000 in um, Honduras, it reached 60 per 100,000, and in El Salvador, it escalated to 97 per 100,000. So just the magnitude of the problem is, for humanitarian reasons, it's a very important problem. But there's more to that. Um, uh, the, as I said before, I mean, crime and violence can risk eroding all the development gains that have been um, gained in the in the region, USAID has invested heavily in these countries, and that the escalation of crime and violence can threaten to erase that those gains and also undermine the future of democracy in these countries. And the most important problem that the U.S. is facing is that many, many, many people are fleeing their countries because of crime and violence reasons. That's not the only reason why they flee. They also free, flee because there's very little uh, opportunities for work and for making progress, um, basically meet, feed their families and uh, find work opportunities. So that's the other reason why they are fleeing. But crime and violence is a major, major reason why people are f uh, fleeing their countries and ending up in the U.S. as illegal migrants. So for that reason also, um, this violence epidemic is a very important reason to, to devote resources and knowledge to see what are the most effective ways that the U.S. government can support these countries to, to prevent the, the wave of crime. And when you say crime and violence, are we talking mainly about gang violence, organized crime? How does that all fit in? Well, um, that's a very good question because when we talk about the crime epidemic, we mostly talk about homicides. So we measure that. That's a very clear measurement. It's the most um, unbiased indicator, even though we all know that the criminal statistics in many of these countries are not very um, reliable. But um, it's of all the measurements, it's like the most objective one. And so it's a clear indication that things are getting out of proportion. But of course, the crime and violence uh, in general refer not just to the homicide rate, but also to a lot of uh, related crimes, mainly extortion and theft. Um, and what affects most of the population in their daily lives is actually not 
the homicide necessarily, but the extortion, because a lot of uh, groups that perpetrate crime and violence are also involved in extortion and theft. So when you have a situation where there is no state presence and there's lack of control, other criminal organizations take advantage of the void and engage in criminal activities that may not necessarily be homicide or end up in homicides but um, deeply, deeply affect the population and, and they also affect very much the perception or the fear of, of crime, which is another very good indicator that we have based on surveys. Um, so uh, there is a lot of, uh, there is a lot of um, theories about what generates the crime and the violence and one of the things that we know uh, there's a lot of things that we don't know, but one of the things that we do know is that it's that gang and criminal drug organizations are responsible for part of the crimes, but we do not know if they are responsible for the majority of the crimes. In many places where there is more research, um, for example, in Guatemala, we have done research in two um, municipalities of Guatemala, and we could account for only 30% of the total crimes could be accounted or related to gangs. So that means that 70%, around 70% of the, of the homicides are not clearly related to gang violence. Um, in terms of drug organizations, it's even more difficult to assess their relationships, but not, it's about 20%. So we don't know who perpetrates the, the rest of the crimes. Um, in some cases, crime happens just because people solve their conflicts violently, and um, a homicide might result in, uh, in a fight that got out of control, or a member of a group found out that his uh, girlfriend was stolen by another group of friends and they end up killing one another. But the reality is that we really don't know enough about um, whether or not these crimes are, or to what extent these crimes are related to criminal groups. It's a common perception that gangs are behind the, um, the violence just because gangs are very, very prevalent, especially in El Salvador and Honduras. Less so in Guatemala, although there is also presence. In the case of Mexico, for example, uh, we're not talking about the same uh, homicide rates, but uh, it's gangs are not that present. It's more uh, drug-related criminal organizations that have been allegedly responsible for the crimes, but there's many places where it's neighbor killing neighbor for very pedestrian reasons. They essentially, people don't know how to solve their conflicts. They are armed, and in many cases, they just escalate and turn out in, in a homicide. Uh, that, by the way, is something that happens in the U.S. as well. Uh, there was one study about the Chicago homicide rate which um, concluded that a lot, a large part of the homicides were circumstantial. They were not related to gangs. So it's a very difficult problem. So USAID uh, is investing in filling this knowledge gap 
uh, along with the World Bank and some other actors that we've been, you know, working with or partnering with in, in various ways. So if a lot of the violence is, I mean, some of it's explainable by gang violence or drug-related violence, but some of it's not, so then what do we know? What, what, what can we do uh, to address both those, you know, relatively clearly explainable aspects of the homicide rate or the overall, you know, uh, rates of criminality, but also this this other part that, that seems to be much, much harder to address. Um, well, that that's, again, that's a very good question. So one of the things that uh, we can do is, first of all, we do know that the majority of, uh, we don't know if they are related to gangs or criminal organizations, but we do know that these crimes are committed by young males, predominantly. Uh, we also know that not unlike uh, criminal patterns in the U.S. and other uh, countries, crime is highly, highly concentrated. Um, so it's concentrated not only in specific municipalities, but in specific neighborhoods. <clears throat> so we know, we know where the hotspots, as we call them, are. We know more or less who these people are. We don't exactly know if they are related to gangs or not, but we know who and where. And so the challenge is to work in programs that address those people who are committing the crimes, and not only those people, but also people that are most at risk of engaging in criminal behavior. So what we, <clears throat> what, what we do is we assess or we uh, using what we know, we inform USAID so that they can design more um, targeted and informed approaches to try to mitigate or prevent the, violent epide the violence epidemic. But what we also do, and this is actually something that we're going to be doing for the next three years, is we're going to generate evidence on the programs that are already in place to see whether or not they are effective, because very little has been done to evaluate the cr crime prevention programs that are now in place in, in Latin America so that we can generate more clear-cut evidence of what is working and see if we can scale it up. So that is something that has been done in the United States quite effectively. There has been a lot of research on what works in crime prevention, and um, so that is a very good way of trying to replicate and scale up uh, approaches that seem to work. Now, <clears throat> like in any other development field, there are no magic bullets here, and these are long-term problems that have very deep social roots. So in a way, uh, you need to be effective. You need to do these programs for a long time, be, be persistent, and also work in a bunch of other areas that are going to be um, supporting the programs, the crime and violence prevention programs themselves. So for example, what do I mean? Um, if we um, agree that many of these uh, criminals and youth offenders or people most at risk are people who are young, who come from um, 
families that don't provide them support, not necessarily dysfunctional families, because there's many dysfunctional families that don't end up with children committing crimes, but essentially lack of adult supervision. So if you have many families that cannot provide for their young uh, kids, if there's nothing for these kids to do, there's no entertainment, there's no... Um, no school sometimes because they drop off of school. There's no um, uh, support network available for them. Then they are much more vulnerable to becoming engaged in criminal behavior. So, <coughs> but so you can target those individuals. You can identify. You can work with them. You can give them support. You can do cognitive behavioral therapy, for example. You can do. Um, Therapies, you can work with them to learn how to uh, deal with conflicts, uh, minimize their anger, manage their anger, etc., etc. You can do a lot of different things, but if you don't also provide them with some kind of job opportunities and uh, education, then it's not sure that these programs will be lasting. So it's not n only important to work on the um, sort of uh, psychological side with these people, uh, you also need to work with the, the environment that will be more supportive and resilient to prevent these individuals from joining again in violence. What would you tell someone that says, okay, I, I want to take the top three, the top four things that work in stopping community violence, uh, what would you tell them? Um, first of all, we know that things that work are those, or programs that work are those programs that are targeted to the right places and the right individuals. So there's a lot of programs that uh, are, um, are done at the, what we call the primary level. So they are universal programs where you don't have a very target, you don't have a clear targeting mechanism to select the individuals who are really at risk. So, for example, when we evaluated m some programs in Mexico, we realized that there were many programs that were working in very vulnerable communities, very unsafe communities, but they were not really targeting the kids at risk. So even in very, very dangerous communities, not all the children or youth are at risk. Some uh, youth are even in these very vulnerable or dangerous um, neighborhoods they don't engage in violence actually the majority of people even in bad neighborhoods don't engage in violence so the first thing is that you need to develop very um, sophisticated tools to actually identify and provide the support to these individuals that's the first thing so targeting is very important I talked about the multi-prong approaches that you need to work with these individuals from a variety of angles, not just the psychological, but also the work environment and the safety nets that you need to create in the community so that they are supported. Um, also, uh, we know that the majority of the um, programs that are very successful in the U.S are based on a combination of uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Those approaches have been proven to be ex extremely effective in reducing, especially reducing um, recidivism. So they are effective for individuals who already engaged in crime and you try to 
prevent them from re-engaging in violence. So that's what we call the tertiary level of intervention. So primary is like universal for everybody. Secondary is identifying individuals who are at risk. And tertiary are those who already engaged in crime. So the most successful programs that have strong, robust evidence of working are those programs based at the tertiary level to um, prevent recidivism. Now, there is also strong evidence of um, school, uh, school programs that um, are very effective in uh, essentially preventing dropouts of uh, individuals or young kids to prevent dropouts because we know that dropping out of school is one of the key um, uh, risk factors for engaging in criminal behavior. So we do know that the more length that the child in, uh, stays in school, the less uh, propensity of these individuals to engage in violent behavior. Behavior. And let me ask you, because you mentioned this earlier in kind of talking about the problem in general, and and you know how it either already has or very easily could have some very significant effects on just democracy, on kind of you know the the polity in these countries and and, and how cohesive it is, and uh, you know. So, so what do you see? Because you know, politics and civic engagement, and you know how citizens kind of participate in their own public life is a big thing that we focus on here at, at Democracy International. It's a big thing that you know, USAID and others focus on around the world. Where, where do you see that going? I mean, is it is it already had a serious impact? Are do there need to be other investments to? address that side of this whole big, you know, problem uh, or, or what? Well, that's, that's a great question because we do know from survey work that the more crime and violence there is in a country, the less people trust democracy and their institutions, right? So um, even though we know that the mano dura or the law enforcement approach, we do know that that is not effective more and more people claim for an authoritarian government who imposes law and order, like harsh law and order policies to crush on the violence wave because they think that maybe just a very authoritarian, hard on crime government could actually stop the violence epidemic. Now, um, we know that that is not true but the risk is that people lose confidence on their institutions. If you compound that with the high levels of corruption that unfortunately many of these countries also experience, then it's not surprising that people are losing faith in their institutions and especially the police and the justice sector institutions. So, um, you know, people don't participate in local government or even national government affairs if they are afraid. Uh, law and order is kind of the most essential function of any government, like the precondition for having the ability for citizens to convene freely and express their opinions and check the government authorities and demand better services and all of the things that we 
care about. Um, so when citizens don't even have law and order, uh, their best prior their most important uh, need is for anybody to come in and basically control the situation. Actually, in some cases, there is a lot of support for gangs or drug lords in some communities because that's exactly what they bring to the co to the neighborhood. These individuals bring them peace and tranquility and sometimes also services, to be frank. Are there any parallels between this kind of work and when we talk about know, stopping extremism or countering extremism, uh, it seems like there, there, there must be certain parallels between what we're finding in Latin America and when we try to implement a program that uh, stops recruiting, uh, you know, violent extremists. So do, do you notice any trends or similarities that are worth comparing? Oh, this is a great question. Absolutely. Um, I think there's many, many parallels. Um, the one very important difference is the ideological uh, angle, which obviously in Latin America we don't have that. The crime and violence that is perpetrated in these uh, in the region is not driven by any ideas of religion or even um, political ideal. It's in some cases driven by identities based on gangs or uh, drug criminal organizations or just, uh, as I said before, just um, common conflicts among neighbors that are not uh, able to be resolved in a peaceful manner. So other than that, uh, some of the drivers that lead, lead people, especially young people, or make them vulnerable to joining these organizations are very similar. So we're talking about young people who are disenfranchised because they don't have jobs, they don't have a proper education, sometimes they are marginalized within their own communities either through racism or through uh, ethnic discrimination or through religious discrimination. Um, they are seeking identity, they don't have support within their families sometimes, they need an identity, they are idle. In, uh, in the case of Latin America, that's a big problem. You have a lot of uh, young individuals who virtually have nothing to do because they are not in school. And even if they are in school, they come home and there's nothing for them to do. So um, they seek uh, relevance in their lives. They seek identity. The gang offers that to them. They see they they find in the gang a network, uh, protection, the identity, camaraderie, everything that they don't have in their daily lives. And the same thing you can say for uh, radical organizations um, that are based on religion that they offer a sense of meaning, a higher meaning to these individuals who lack that in their own lives. Well, this has been a really interesting discussion. Thank you, Yumile, for your time today. Thank you very much for giving me this opportunity sh to share my work with you. views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Democracy International.